traumatic things. They needed to be careful that they not be misled to imagine that the Messiah had come at those points. But he's, he wants to, you know, warn them not only about being misled, but about the persecution that they're going to face and how they need to deal with that. So 12 to 19. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So, he says, before all these things happen, you're going to get persecuted and drugged before uh, synagogues and uh, kings and governors, and put in prison, and all that kind of stuff. We normally prefer not being on trial, um, how did Jesus want them to view these, uh, you know, situations? An opportunity. To? Testify. About? Jesus. Yeah. You know, he says, these are going to be opportunities to proclaim Christ. You're going to be able to tell the story of Jesus in the courtroom before kings, governors, and so forth. You know, how many people would look at going to court over your faith as an opportunity to preach? You know, instead of saying, oh, what a terrible thing, what a bummer, whatever. No, this is going to be an opportunity. You'll be able to share your faith with more people that way. Every difficult circumstance can be an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And um, he said, don't prepare beforehand to defend yourself. I'll you know, be willing to give you wisdom that your opponents won't be able to resist. It's like, you don't have to rehearse this. This is not going to be, trust the Lord, trust me. You know, I'll I'll use you, I'll give you wisdom, I'll give you what to say when the time comes. And so, relax and just be bold and tell them about Jesus. And uh, that, that, I think, is just such a fascinating, you know, attitude. And if we had that more, where we would look at things... You know, I mean, we so often get bummed out by any setback or difficulty. But how many of those, if we looked at them the other way, would give us another opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus? Or an opportunity to demonstrate what faith in Christ does for you in difficult situations? Then he says you'll be betrayed by your relatives, and they'll put you to death. That's, uh, you know, bad. I mean, you know, you would think they'd stick with you no matter what. He said, you'll be hated by all because of my name. You know, it's not just your relatives, everybody. You know, how do we handle being confronted for our faith by somebody? You know, so often we want to apologize and make everybody happy. And and he's warning them. Your family, pretty much everybody, is going to hate you because of my name. And so I think we need to be more prepared to speak boldly and receive the hatred and persecution that comes with it. Yet he says, you not, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. Um, so 
would they never get killed for the cause of Christ? Probably not, seeing as verse 16 says they'll put some of you to death. Exactly. <laughs> so this is like, how does he say you'll, they'll put some of you to death, and then, but not a hair of your head will perish. They'll kill you, but not the hairs. It seems like a contradiction, don't you think? And it's just two verses apart. <laughs> Maybe it's the perspective. You might physically die, but spiritually you won't. It seems to me like we're locked into that. I don't see how else to take that in view of verse 16. That he's saying, I'll take care of you, and you'll not perish, you might die. But death is the entrance into life. You know, God will be with us. I mean, you know, it's coming out of the Great Tribulation in Revelation 7's uh, language. And so I, I think he's saying, I'll be with you, I'll take care of you, and it doesn't matter if they kill your body. Might have been me, but you know what I mean. My friends are here. The comments or questions through verse nineteen. So verses fourteen and fifteen is that talking about like the apostles being given the words to speak, or what? I can preach it either way. Depends <laughs> <laughs> on the day, which which way I take it. Today, I think it's probably for anybody, but sometimes I've taken it as just being apostles. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, we're not like inspired with the same like they were to always speak the truth by the Spirit just controlling what they said. On the other hand, I, I wonder if this isn't shouldn't be applied by us. I mean, God will give us the wisdom. If we'll follow him, and we don't have to get uptight about what we're going to say on Friday. <laughs> Just trust the Lord and say what He teaches us, and He'll take care of us. So I, I suspect there's a secondary sense in which this applies to everybody, if not a complete sense in which it applies to everybody. So it's not saying don't don't study, don't know what it is you need to say. It's you don't have to sit there and rehearse and worry about it and go, oh, I've got to say this exactly right. You just have to say what the truth is. And this is not a sermon anyway. I mean, you're going to be on trial. And you can imagine that being a very unnerving experience. He's saying, you don't have to, you know, get all flustered about it. I'll be with you. I'll give you what to say. I mean, aren't there times even in teaching people where people are afraid? What if they ask this? What if they say that? I want to have... No, relax. The Lord will take care of it. He'll be with you. You know, obviously we studied the Bible. I mean, I don't think the apostles didn't ever study. I mean, Paul, they certainly recommended it. You know, and Paul <laughs> asked for the parchments to be brought. You know, uh, so, I mean, the scriptures are our food. I mean, even if we didn't need to study to defend ourselves, we need to study for other reasons. So uh, it seems to me like this is more like, don't get up tight on trial feeling like you're not going to be able to say it right. Don't worry about saying it right. Just, you know, God will take care of it. He'll, he'll give you the wisdom. Other thoughts? I was going to observe the Passover on that, so that's good to hear. <laughs> All right, 20 to 28. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her, dis um, that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. 
because these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So this is a uh, challenging text. Uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, we are assuming that's the Roman in AD 70-ish. And he says, then recognize that her desolation is near. I take it this is the fulfillment of verse 6, where the time's coming when one stone will be left on another in the temple. And what he advises them is counterintuitive. What does he tell them to do? Leave, Leave Jerusalem. Jerusalem and go to... Normally you would... Leave, leave the mountains and, and go to the to city, which is a fortress by the walls. So this is uh, not what you would normally do. Um, wonder if he could be talking about the second coming of Christ. Well, the mountains wouldn't do you much good. It wouldn't help a bit. So it wouldn't make any sense at all to say when Jesus comes back, you know, flee to the mountains. <laughs> How is that going to help? He can fight in the mountains just like he could in the city. So I think this clearly is in the context of destruction of Jerusalem. And because the Romans were going to besiege the city and starve it out, they'd be better off in the mountains than they would be in the city, I'd counter what would usually be the case. So these are the days of vengeance. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. I assume this destruction of Jerusalem, then, is the result of God's vengeance, God's wrath. This is not just a twist of fate. It's not just a political thing or some kind of a tragedy. This is God taking vengeance on the Jews for their sins, for filling up the cup of wrath, and especially for massacring his son. Remember the story about the vineyard owner that learned out the vineyard, and they persecuted the servants, and when he sent the son, they killed him. Well, what was God going to do about that? Well, just exactly what he does right here. And I believe there is prophetic precedent for the destruction of Jerusalem in that case. Like Daniel has some things to say about that, for example. Uh, perhaps Zechariah as well. So, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babes in those days. Because there's going to be terrible distress on the land and wrath of this people. Now, what would be bad about being pregnant or having a small child? You'd be slow. Yeah, you'd be slow to get out. Fleeing is difficult with him. Yeah, it would be. Now, again, if this was the second coming, is it bad to be pregnant if Jesus comes back? You know, it wouldn't have any relevance whatsoever. It would be in any condition physically you would like. Um, so, uh, and he says they will fall by the edge of the sword. That's one thing. They'll be led captive into all the nations, that's another thing. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So it's like the Gentiles, I assume the Roman armies, are going to trample Jerusalem down 
uh, as long as God permits them to have the upper hand. I think that the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled in saying, you know, until God decides that there's been enough. Uh, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Now, that sounds weird. Uh, were there you know, astrological phenomena with the destruction of Jerusalem? Astronomical phenomena, maybe that would be better. I don't think so. Not that I know about. Uh, I don't think that's what this is saying. I think this is the typical figurative judgment language for the destruction of the nation, like the lights were going out, uh, the world was coming to an end for that nation. The roaring of the sea and the waves is often used, like in Isaiah 17, for the turbulence of the nations, for nations, enemy nations, powerful oppressing nations that are like the waves of the sea pounding at uh, the Jews here. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the power of the heavens will be shaken again. I think the idea is this, the fear, the, the despair, trauma that they feel with the destruction of Jerusalem the powers of the heavens being shaken is like the terrible earthquakes. Again, that's a typical judgment language thing from the Old Testament prophets. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That sounds like the second coming, except that's used in Isaiah 19 for his coming to destroy Egypt. It's used in Revelation for his coming to punish churches. So I think this is not second coming, coming of Jesus, but a coming to destroy Jerusalem. And this is the time of their redemption, their victory over Jerusalem, the kind of the, they uh, were proven right in their conflict with the Jews through this. So I think all of this is really referring to the AD 70 time period and the terrible events surrounding that where Jesus came and judged the Jewish nation for its sins and particularly its rejection of his son. Questions and comments about all that. Were there multiple nations involved in this? Or would you just take that also figuratively from verse 25 about the nations being in dismay? Yeah, I mean, certainly the Romans dismayed more than just the Jews. They were pretty much uh, tyrants over all nations. But it may just be, you know, using that in some kind of a accommodative sense to say, you know, things were really bad for all the people around there. So what would be the, your redemption draws near in the end of verse 28? Yeah, I mean, that's a really difficult expression for me to understand what he's saying by that. I mean, it was their salvation from the Jews who have been persecuting him a lot. He may mean that. It's their, it's their vindication. You know, it's God proving that they were the ones on the right side of things. You may mean that, but I, I don't have a strong opinion about that. It didn't, I mean, did it end some kind of Jewish persecution? Like, there's a lot of Roman persecution, so I'm not sure if I would see the Romans taking over Jerusalem as a redemption. Well, but there was plenty of Jewish persecution, if you look at the Book of Acts and, you know, so forth, as they would, you know, persecute, the, even sometimes using Romans to persecute the Christians. About when, when was uh, Christianity... Christianity recognized as a separate religion from Judaism by the Romans? I don't know the answer to that. Because I, I know that when, I, I seem to recall that when that happened, then 
the Jews could no longer directly persecute the Christians under Roman law because we believe that all of these gods are okay kind of thing. They couldn't they couldn't say, oh, this is an internal problem with this sect and you just don't worry about it. We'll may, that may have, I mean, I would assume that meant they didn't have the Roman protection that for being a lawful religion, a lawful offshoot of Judaism. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm not a, not a church history guy. So. And so you would see the end of 24 as Jerusalem will be trampled by the Romans until the time of the Romans. Is until the time that God intends to let up. Okay, so you would not see Gentiles there in a generic sense, like... Well, they are Gentiles, Jews. but I suspect they're primarily... Well, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. So you don't mean all non-Jews. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said <clears throat> the end of 28 is saying, like, that they would be delivered from the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, that could be. Because <laughs> <clears throat> he's telling them to flee, and, like, they would be safe to, like, pay attention and... Now you're gonna, about to be delivered from this. Yeah, the destruction is often also a deliverance, like the flood delivered Noah, even though it destroyed everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have a strong Verse 25. The signs in the sun, moon, and stars... Wasn't there something in Revelation about that and same kind of a concept where it refer it was like a yeah, reference to particular leaders or people um, that the sun and the stars could be like, there's going to be problems among these specific leaders, not necessarily identifying them, or am I just like having one of those weird dreams again? I don't know. That's uh, not something I'm familiar with. Because I was thinking that, like, I saw a great star falling from heaven, and it uh-huh. was like a reference to possibly, like, Josephus or some other. But I don't know why I think that. Well, he does have the star falling from heaven to the earth with the key to the abyss in Revelation 9. Mm. I don't think that's anything to do with Josephus. No. Do you mean the woman clothed with the sun and the moon was under her feet? And she had a crown of 12 stars. That was because there was something related. Maybe it was the star falling from heaven is also in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, you've got uh, Isaiah fourteen. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I, I had some connection in my head with Josephus, but I don't know why. Uh, as far as I know, what the Bible the Yeah, the good question. I mean, uh, I'm assuming like just the sun, moon, and stars. Like the shaking of those things. I mean, you've got a passage like uh, Haggai uh, two that might uh, might be kind of a similar kind of a thing. Um, speak to Zerubbabel. Haggai two twenty one. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, "I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down and everyone by the sword of one another. It's kind of God's judgment shaking the heavens and the earth. Um, and, and there's several other passages that, you know, talk about in connection with the destruction of a nation. God shaking the heaven or the earth or both. Uh, Isaiah 13, 13. 
Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place. And that's in connection with the fall of Babylon. So, yeah, I think it's a judgment, symbolic language. I, I don't understand. I mean, I, I kind of view all of that as maybe end of the world language to refer to destruction of a nation, like their world is coming to an end. But I'm not sure if that's really the best way to look at that. It, you know, some of these things, we may not know exactly how we are to see them as far as why does this poetry mean the end of a nation. But it does, because we see it several times used that way. <laughs> so I think we're on pretty solid ground to say this is a typical judgment figure. I'm not so sure we know exactly why it's a judgment figure or what it really should conjure up in our mind. I think it just seems out of place because you read all that in the Old Testament, but not very often in the New Testament. So, like, it catches us off guard when it's here, and you kind of view it differently than you would if you read it in Isaiah or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Probably so. I mean, some of this is pretty much apocalyptic language. And we don't have a lot of that in the New Testament. I mean, the Matthew 24 and its parallels like this, and Revelation. You know, those are probably the basic apocalyptic texts, maybe Luke 17. Uh, but, yeah. Anything else I can't answer well? All right, 29 to 33. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, so you also, when you see these things happen, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Okay. So, he uses kind of a mini parable about the fig tree putting out leaves. What does that tell you? Springtime. Yeah. So also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. You know, this, these, these various things he's been saying in this chapter should help them see that God's kingdom had drawn near. Now, that's an interesting expression also, right? How does the destruction of Jerusalem cause us to recognize the kingdom of God is near? What is the kingdom of God? <coughs> the destruction of Jerusalem is a sign of God's rule and sovereignty. I think that's the point. The kingdom of God means God's rule, God's dominion. And so you saw his royal power draw near. It just was displayed in the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a demonstration of him ruling and reigning as king. On the erroneous idea that normally the kingdom means the church, this would be a weird passage. And when we see these things happening, recognize that the church is near. <laughs> church is right around the corner. You go to one of your choice or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but, the, but I think kingdom should be thought of as more the concept of the dominion and sovereignty of God. The church are the people over whom 
God reigns as king and they accept his kingship, although he reigns really over all things in heaven and on earth. It's kind of a twofold reign of Christ. But I think here it's just displaying his kingship. And this all happened before this generation passes away. Um, so that pretty much says to me that everything down to here at least would happen within that generation. People try to redefine generation, but I think unsuccessfully. Uh, especially when he says this generation. Um, and he said, heaven and earth pass away, but my word will pass away. There's a lot of things that, uh, you know, are, are passing, they're, 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 they're fragile, they don't, they're not, they're not solid, but Jesus' words, you know, I mean, even the heavens and the earth are passing away, but Jesus' words are absolutely reliable. Uh, there's a, there's a story about, uh, this French skeptic Voltaire, I think my dad used to use this, uh, but it's, I believe, a true story. Voltaire was a famous French atheist in, I don't know, 1600s, maybe something like that, 1700s. And, uh, you know, he predicted that within a generation, the Bible would just be completely forgotten. Um, you know, you might even be able to find a copy of it. I think 50 years after his death, his house was being used as a place to print Bibles. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of people have spoken about the demise of, uh, you know, the belief in God and the Word and things like that. Uh, so far, they've uh, been inaccurate. <laughs> it was probably helpful to have this mentioned that um, about the kingdom of God being near, because typically you would think that the destruction of Jerusalem would indicate that God's rule is not here because they're uh, destroying God's temple and and those kinds of things. So it's probably useful that Jesus predicted it ahead of time and said, no, actually, uh, you know, God's rule is here and God's hand is in this. Yes, and of course the, uh, the, the temple was just an empty shell by that point. God was not present. Sure, but not everybody. Right, you're right, that. exactly, you're right. Does it say near, like... Can be spatially or temporally. (laughs) (laughs) Emotionally. (laughs) No, but like, not near as in it's about to happen. Like, the kingdom of God came before the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Or is it saying, it's saying like, God's in proximity. Yeah, that's what I said. The word near can be used both spatially, spatially and temporally. <laughs> you understand that? In near in space and near in time. It, it means both, just as our word near does. So, it can, it could mean it's, it's right, it's coming right away. You know, it's near in time, or it could be it's near in space. I think this is more a spatial concept. You see it having drawn near, you know, you see a manifestation, you, it came right down in your face, the fact that Jesus is king. But you've always got that ambiguity with that term. You've got a, here's a passage where that's relevant, Philippians 4, this is debated, is what it means in Philippians 4. Uh, Philippians 4, uh, verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer. Does it mean the Lord is near like he's about to come? Does it mean the Lord is near like he's right around the corner? You can take it either way. I think it's better he's close in proximity in that passage. But, you know, it's 
That's a debatable issue. Other questions or comments? All right, 34 to 38. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth, face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount, uh, on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. All right. So he says, be on guard that your hearts not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and worries of this life. That's a, that's a, should be a theme for our generation. You know, it's so easy for us to be weighted down and distracted by all the things of this life, making a living, uh, making ends meet, fun, games, entertainment, success, school, you know, hobbies, family, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and, you know, people just get all wrapped up in dissipation, drunkenness, and the worries of life. And so they, they're not focused on the Lord. You know, it reminds you of the thorny ground, where all the weeds grow up and suffocate the, the fruit production. You know, so we need to trim a bunch of stuff out. You know, don't let your heart be weighted down with all this stuff, stuff because then the day will come upon you as a trap. You won't even be ready for it, expecting it, because you got all this other stuff. You know, it's hard to focus when you got a bunch of other stuff drawing your mind away and your attention away. Uh, we don't we don't do well when we're weighted down. We don't run well when we're weighted down. He says, "For that day will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Be, keep on the alert." Um, so, I suspect he's transitioned now to talking about the second coming, and he's saying you're going to need to be watchful. Um, you know, and just be ready, uh, be praying that you'll be doing the right thing when Jesus comes back. Um, you know, we need more sense, more awareness of Jesus' return because it keeps us from being so distracted and it keeps us more um, alert and just maybe eager and excited for his return, thoughtful about his return, you know, an urgent sense of mission because he's returning. You know, um, Jesus might come back today. But I'll tell you something. If he does or if he doesn't, I personally am 59 years closer to meeting Jesus than I was when I was born. That's the truth. Time is drawing nearer for all of us. Whether he comes back today or 2,000 years from now, we'll meet him close every day. We're getting a day closer to being with him. So being alert and watchful and prepared and focused on that. I think it'll help us not to be so focused on just all the this life stuff that seems so important and so even burdensome and dragging us down and weighting us down and oh what about this and what about that well it won't last long <laughs> you know it's not the main thing it's not the you know we just gotta have a better perspective on those things thoughts and comments through 36 I think it's it's a good thing 
that he's got both dissipations and drunkenness and the worries of life. You may not be going out every night for a kegger or something, but you're still going to be worried about the work and the family and getting sick and whether the yard's going to be mowed or, you know, whatever. And those are perfectly normal and natural and moral and upright things to have at least care over, if not like worry, worry. But so it's not just doing bad things, but it's also just those normal everyday life things that (coughs) you see in the way. Good point. So Jesus uh, was uh, in the temple teaching during the day out uh, the Mount of Olives at night. Uh, and the people come to the temple every morning to listen to it. That's chapter 21. Yes. Is Olivet, the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane? It's all in the same basic place. Okay. That's what I thought, but I'm not, I'm not going to assume on that, but that's, that's what I understood. Okay. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. 